Well, welcome everybody to all of our campuses, meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. So glad you made it to church. You extracted yourself away from the fair. So way to go. I also want to welcome those of you who are uh, joining us uh, online throughout the country and world. Always glad to have you a part of our congregation. We know you're out there. So welcome to all of you. And this video that you just saw, Orphan Network in Nicaragua, is one of the best ministries on the, on the planet. It really is. I've been down there. I've witnessed it. We're a part of it as our church. Over $200,000 we gave to Orphan Network from this church last year. And these folks feed orphans, uh, educate them, and also lead them to Christ as the highest value. 400 children have come to Christ through that ministry. So I'm just so proud of those of you who give. Part of what you give toward this church goes to ministries like this that are well vetted. We know where the money goes. Dick Anderson, the, the leader of the group, is such a humble leader. He's a good friend of mine. And I'm just, uh, just so proud of all of you who understand uh, that giving's important, really, not just for our church here, but around the globe. So way to go. Today, today we get a new series called Helping the Next Gen Win, and I think the next gen is anybody who's behind you. So this is really for everyone today, whoever's next, who's ever behind us is the next gen. I've always thought that every generation has the same needs, to be loved, educated, work hard, and have a relationship with Jesus Christ who will then guide them through their lives. I believe that if you trust God with all your heart, if you trust God with all your heart and then follow his commands to have no other gods before him, to honor your parents, work five days a week, be faithful to your spouse if you're married, and don't lie, murder, cheat, or steal from people, you know, basic things that your life will go very, very well. And if you don't do those things, you won't have such a great life. Uh, I'm 62, which I know is shocking for most of you to hear how old I am. But when I was growing up, our family didn't have much. My dad was a pastor. We five kids uh, didn't have a lot growing up. He was a pastor of smaller churches uh, for the most part. So I started working when I was 10 years old, delivering newspapers seven days a week, every day, mowing lawns, there was no allowance in our family. I didn't know what allowance was. Whatever candy or fishing lures that we kids wanted, we worked for and we purchased with our own money. I saved up and bought my first motorcycle at age 15. That was, boy, those were the days. I had hair on, on top of my head, on my legs. I mean, it was awesome. What a stud. But I paid, I, paid a, I paid $850 cash for that Suzuki motorcycle when I was 15. Bought my first car at age 19 for $750 cash. And I paid for my own gas and my own insurance. I never thought once did I ever think, my parents should pay for all this. They owe me. Never thought that. Never crossed my thinking. I was just grateful we had a house to live in a bed to sleep in, and parents who stayed together no matter what. And we went to church three times a week. That's where I learned that God loved me and sent his son to save me. He gave me his word, the Bible, to guide me through my life, and it has all through life. It's where I met most of my friends at church and most of my adult mentors who helped me grow up. Then when I went to college, age 18, my parents drove 950 miles from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, where we lived, near Pittsburgh, to the Twin Cities, and day one, they dropped my duffel bag off at my dormitory, and my dad drove me over to Columbia Transit Bus Company and said, my son Bob wants to drive school bus. 
I thought I do. I didn't know that. I was just 18 years old. I was just a kid myself. But two weeks later, I was behind the wheel of a four-ton vehicle driving kids to school. And I did that for the next four years to pay for college because my parents weren't going to pay for it. They couldn't afford it. I don't know if my parents realized it, but from zero to 18, they were teaching me a very valuable lesson. And the lesson is this. My life was up to me. Whatever happened in my life, it was on me. They weren't going to care for my life at this point. They gave me a great foundation. They said, Bob, live by God's word. Work hard. Don't date or marry someone who's a project. And then it was up to me. They basically dropped me off at college and said, see ya. You know, come back if you want to visit. But that's about it. So I knew, I knew at age 18 that if I was going to have a great life someday, it wasn't going to be handed to me. I knew that I better finish school, find work, go to church and marry well, or I'd be living in a van down by the river. No doubt about it. That was what's going to happen. It was all on me, and I knew whatever decisions I made about all these things in life would pretty much determine how my life would go. So gang, the idea of helping the next generation win is really helping any generation win, helping any person win. But there are some differences in each generation today, and some of these differences are concerning to me. For example, a lot of attention these days on Gen Y or the millennial generation, uh, and I would, I would say that they're about ages 25 to 35, give or take, you know, some ages here. But there's a lot of tension on this generation. To quote Dave Ramsey, I love this quote, who's got a lot of millennials on his staff of 900 people. He says, I absolutely love millennials. Love them. He says, because you know exactly what you're getting. Either they're absolutely over-the-top fantastic, or they're not. And now that's kind of a generality, but that, there's some truth to that. So a couple of facts around this. There's 50 million millennials in America today. 15% of them still live at home. I get it. Sometimes you need to do that. There's financial issues. But 15 still live at home per percent. They hope for marriage, but a lot of them are dangerously isolated, these 15%, from real life. 50% grew up without a father around. Just wasn't around, abandoned or not there. 50% are unemployed or underemployed and live paycheck to paycheck with no retirement account started. Now, I'm going to give some ways to break out of this, but I want to show you some differences between four generations. This comes from Dr. Tim Elmore, who's just an outstanding researcher on this, has written a lot about it. There's the great generation, 1929, born th through 1945. I would label this generation as the generation of scarcity. This is when the Great Depression was happening, World War II was happening. This is my mom and dad's generation. And they're frugal, conservative, because they just didn't have much. When my dad turned 60, we five kids bought him a brand new fishing pole. You know what he did? He stuck it in the attic. 
fully wrapped, never used it because he was saving it. Used his old crummy fiberglass fishing pole that was broken and missing eyelets. He died 12 years later. That brand new fishing pole was still in the attic because things were scarce. Well, the boomers came along, 1946 to 1964. They were born. This is my generation. This is the generation of opportunity. We didn't want to live in scarcity anymore. By the way, the reason it's called the boomers is nine months after World War II, all these love-crazy soldiers came home. Nine months later, 76 million babies were born. That's why it's called the baby boom. And this generation went from scarcity to opportunity. And by the way, some of us in the boomer generation went to indulgence. Not all of us, but indulgent life. Next are the Gen X, the Busters, 1965-1982. I call this the, the generation of anxiety. Uh, this is a little darker time. Vietnam was happening. Watergate 1969, remember what happened in 1969? Woodstock happened, and just kind of a darker, boomers were overindulged, many got divorced, so busters felt abandoned, many of them. Disconnected, afraid, trying to find their way. The Gen Y uh, generation called the millennials, 1983-2000. I call this generation of options. This is when my kids were born, during the 80s and 90s is when these people lived, have lived so far. Life's a cafeteria with a zillion different options. So you grab a tray, you go through the line, and you just pick and choose. You design your own meal like a cafeteria. You know, it comes to shopping for shoes. You grab your iPhone and you choose from a thousand different brands around the world, you know, prime to your house the next day. It's insane. We never used to do that. Spiritually, you know, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Oprah. Higher power, just pick and choose. This is the generation of options. But Tim Elmore says, look, many adults see youth as the problem, but we should see them as the solution with one qualifier if we equip them for adulthood. So the question is, what should we do to help the next generation win? And by the way, what should Gen Y and Gen X do and Gen Z as the next generation do to help themselves? Because it's going to be on you. No one's going to hand it to you. It's going to be on you. So uh, one more, I want to show you one more uh, uh, chart here. This is our scene today. This comes from Dr. Elmore again. This is our scene today. So S stands for speed. This is our world today, speed. Everything's fast. But as everything's fast, I can assume that slow is bad. Anything that takes time, like an education, building a career, you know, that just, it's, it's just bad because it takes so long. C stands for convenience. Everything's Convenient. I can be in line at Starbucks, although I never am because I make my own coffee. I'm too cheap. But I can be in line at Starbucks and at the same time watch videos and pay my mortgage. Just standing there waiting for coffee. But if everything's convenient, I can assume that hard is bad. 
You know what's not convenient? Marriage. Work. Raising a one-year-old. Not convenient. And so, you know, when those things get hard, millennials think, why is my life so hard? It's because that's life. Life's hard. E stands for entertainment. I grew up with six channels on television, black and white. When we got a colored TV, I thought, what has happened? This is unbelievable. Today we have in our hands immediate access to YouTube, video games, Netflix, Spotify, and world news. But if we are entertained 24-7, we can assume that boring is bad. You know what's boring? Marriage is boring most of the time. It's wonderful, but it's also boring. Not my marriage. My wife said, Bob, come on. Last night, she said, give me a break. I love our marriage, and the longer you're in it, the better it gets, I'm telling you. Don't bail at, eight, at year two. I mean, but school is boring. Work, saving money, being a stay-at-home mom or parent is mind-numbing boring. But if we're entertained 100, you know, 24-7, we can assume that this is all bad. Next is entertain or nurture. Yeah, nurture, sorry. And for nurture, okay. Now, not every child has been nurtured well, but most of us are overly nurtured. <laughs> Some of us are. There are so many safety devices today. I, I, I tried to buckle my two-year-old granddaughter a couple months ago into her car seat. It was so complicated. Two years old, she finally got tired of me trying to figure it out. She brushed my hand away and said, like this, Bubba, and she buckled herself in. <laughs> so we took away monkey bars from the playgrounds. They wear helmets to school. <laughs> but if everything's safe, we can assume that risk is bad. No risk. My son reminded me just a couple weeks ago that when he was six years old, I bought him a BB gun, because every six-year-old should have a BB gun. So I took him out of our backyard, and I said, Dave, see if you can shoot a leaf off of one of our trees there. And I, he's a little bit too close to the tree, but he, he took aim, he shot, and it ricocheted off the tree and hit him right in the square, right, right in the forehead. No damage, but stung a little bit. He said, Dad, do you remember what you told me in that moment? I said, no. He said, he said you told me, we better not tell Mom about this, or she's going to take it away from us. Now, I happen to believe that risk is good, but maybe not as good as this kid uh, believes. This is a little too risky, I think. I would not want to have to raise this kid at all. <laughs> He's not wearing helmets, I'll tell you that, but his parents probably should be wearing helmets. Now, safety is good. I'm just having a little bit of fun here, but we can assume that if everything is nurturing and safe, that risk is bad. Final one is entitlement. Again, not every, not every child these days is entitled or, or millennials entitled, grew up that way. But if I grew up thinking I should be given everything, I can assume that labor is bad. 
So if I get a trophy for just showing up and a juice box, don't even get me started on this. This is insanity. Give me a break. Don't, I can't go down there. Okay. Then why should I work for anything if everything is given to me? Now, this is our scene. But if you look at this list on the right, aren't these the things that develop me into a human being who understands character and work and challenge? Aren't these the things that make me who I am? A productive and resourceful and wise human being. I love the convenience of this, conveniences of this world, but they can shield us from the things that make us into people of strength. Love this verse. Great verse. James 1. Consider it a gift. When challenges come at you. Another translation. Consider it pure joy. When trials come your way. It's a gift. Where do you get challenged? At work. It's a gift. At school, at home. Consider that a gift when you're challenged because you know something. That under pressure, your faith and your character has a chance to grow. So let it happen. Let challenges and pressure do its work so you can become mature and complete not deficient in any way. Challenges and pressure are what produces maturity. So in the time we have left, I'm going to give one challenge to those of you who are Gen Y, Gen X, and Gen Z. Okay, millennials and on down. And then I'm going to give a second challenge to everybody else. Okay? First challenge to those of you who are in this generation, uh, you know, behind us. Don't drift. Don't just drift through life thinking stuff should come to you. I love what Jay, Meg Jay says. I've quoted her many times. Uh, you ought to watch her TED Talk. I've said this before. 14 minutes, it's worth every second. She's a psychologist, a secular woman, not a Christian, who specializes in counseling 20-somethings at the University of Virginia. Look what she says. And a drift 20-something woman will come into my office and flippantly say, no worries, the 30s are the new 20s. So she's dating down, sleeping with an idiot, delaying a career, and extending adolescence. But what do you think happens, Jay says, when you pat a 20-something on the head and say you have 10 extra years to start your life? Nothing. Nothing happens. You rob that person of the urgency of making something of their life. Half of millennials are underemployed or unemployed. But half are not. I'm so proud of those of you who are excelling and leading the way in your generation. Your generation needs you to set the pace. But if you're stuck as a millennial and on down. Don't expect things to happen just by drifting. Here's a couple of things I'd say. Get new friends. 
who are achieving something in life. Learn from them. See a counselor. Get some advice. Read a good book. There's a couple out there. There's one brand new one that's outstanding. Read that book. <laughs> you say, I don't like to read. Well, then I can't help you. You got to read. Make some contacts. Go to a good church like this one and go through the necessary boring process of building a career. Put your life on project status because Jay says this, the events that make your life what it is happen by age 35. Getting educated, building a career, getting married, having kids. And if you waste your 20s, you'll be a decade behind. Now, as soon as I say that, please, if you're 40, don't panic. Don't panic. You can still make something great in your life. But the point is, don't waste your life. Don't waste your 20s. If you wasted your 20s, don't waste your 30s. If you wasted your 30s, don't waste your 40s, 50s, and 60s. If you're 82, go ahead and waste a couple of days. I mean, give yourself a break. But catch this. Catch this. The best time to work on a marriage is long before you have one. Teenagers. 20-somethings. The best time to work on a career is long before you get one. The best time to work on adulthood is long before you are one. Don't drift. So if you're a late teen here today or listening, watching online, or 20-something single woman or single guy, the best time to work on a marriage is before you have one. If that's the best time, I have a question for you. Then should you go to bars, date down, and sleep around? Or... Should you go to church, build your faith, and protect your character so that you have a chance at dating and marrying another person of character? You know, what's the wise thing to do? If you want to attract a good, godly person, then you've got to be a good, godly person yourself. And then here's the key. Trust that God will honor you. And bring the right person your way at the right time. I know it seems lonely and desperate at times. And the pickings can seem very slim. But can I tell you about something? About looking for a guy or a gal at a bar. Or a frat party or a nightclub. And I try to think about how you know Minnesotans would especially relate to this. That's like fishing for trout in a carp pond. <laughs> Nothing against carp. I've caught a lot of carp throw them up on the bank. You know, there's nothing against carp. But you're not going to catch a trout in a carp pond. you got to go fishing where good fish are swimming and living. A couple things I'd give thought to if I'm a young person. Where to go to college? Is it a Christian school that attracts other students who are Christians? Or is it a party school that attracts students without a moral compass? Now, if you're in the latter situation at a party school or secular university, any university today, that's what it is, then you have to seek out a campus ministry group. They're at every university camp. You gotta do it and you gotta plug in. You gotta seek out one or two other good Christian people so you can support each other. 
Another question I'd ask, do you attend a good church like this one? Where there's a good singles population. The best way to meet singles, by the way, if you're in this church, serve in our kids and youth ministries. Or join a small group, single small group, best way. They're all around us. And do your friends go to a good church like this so you can meet each other? How about your work? Is your employer known for integrity and morality? Or do they tolerate a culture of moral misconduct and attract a lower kind of person? Now, maybe you can't change jobs, but just understand that environment. That's maybe not the best place to find a dating person. But the best time to work on a marriage, career, and family is long before you have one. So don't drift through your teens. Don't drift through your 20s. Okay, now this second thing is, is for everybody else. It's to set an example for anybody who's behind you or alongside you. Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy's his young protege, about 19, 20 years old. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, set an example in your speech, in how you live, in how you love people, in your faith, and in your purity. You might think, you know, you're too young to impact another person, but Paul tells Timothy, you're not too young. Other people need you to show them the way. You might be 16 years old here today, or 18, or 21, or 30. You can set an example for others to follow. Somebody needs you to do that. Had a 16-year-old kid call me and said, can I come in for prayer? And he's an elite hockey player. He's a sophomore in high school. He's going to be shipped to Michigan, just 23, picked out of the United States. And he attends our church, his family attends. And he's an elite player. And he said, can I, can I come in for prayer? Because I'm leaving home. And I just, he came into my office on Wednesday morning. And the most humble, six foot two, just a cut. Man, he was unbelievable, impressive kid humble and you know uh courteous that's not the word uh deferential just great spirit he said would you pray for me just be happy to pray for you and i said hey you're wearing a bracelet what's that saying i could have said anything you know i just took a chance he says well it's romans 12 1 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind i said Chaz, i'm so proud of you i said when you go to michigan be a leader be a leader. Your teammates need you to show them how to follow Christ, what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to be 60 to have an influence on somebody's life. God's spirit is in you. God's power is available to you. Paul says, set an example in your speech, in what you say. I want to address the parents here parents here for just a second. You know, far too many parents today say nothing. They see their teenager, 20-something, 30-something, drifting, misbehaving, zoned out on video games, not going to church. And here's what a lot of parents do. They think, well, we're going to let them figure it out on their own because we don't want to impose our values or our beliefs on our kids. Huge mistake. Because I'll guarantee this culture is going to impose its values. If they go to university, it's going to impose its values, its godless, deranged values on your kids. 
Hollywood and television, the rest of it, this culture is going to impose its values on your kids. And parents, if you don't show them the way and speak up, a lot of these kids is what's going to happen. They're going to end up no direction, no sense of right or wrong, no faith. They're going to lack motivation and then wonder why they have a dead-end life. This is the first generation, by the way, that doesn't need their parents for information because they got Google. They don't need parents for information, but they need you for interpretation about faith, family, sexuality, and truth. You know, how are we going to live in this culture? They need your voice. They need your wisdom. Parents, speak up. Set an example in speech and in life. Because some people say things and they don't live it. Other people say, well, I'm just going to set an example, but I'm not going to say anything. It's got to be both speech and life. So if we adults want the next generation to follow Christ, then we adults, we parents must follow Christ. If we want those behind us to be morally responsible, then we as adults and parents and teachers, coaches, must be morally responsible. Questions parents and mentors should ask themselves. What kind of example are all of we setting in the areas of faith, morality, spending, sexuality, and achievement? Do they see us praying? Do they see that church is a priority? Do they see us in control of our behavior? How do we as adults and parents handle alcohol? in our home, and what are our, what are our children learning from that? Good old Dr. Phil, this is a fantastic quote, spot on. The secret to raising children of character is being a person of character yourself. Because for better or worse, your children take on your beliefs and your behaviors. Now everybody blows it. Our kids saw us spend too much money watch too much TV. They've seen us fight, argue, and say bad words. And my wife's had to apologize for that. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you're a parent, teacher, coach, manager, student, You're not up to bat next. You're up to bat now. You're in the batter's box. This world needs you to step up and speak up. Set an example to your friends at school and at work. Find the courage to challenge bad behavior and stupid thinking. Find the courage to challenge spiritual drift when you see one of your Christian friends kind of drifting spiritual, spiritually. This world needs you. This church needs you. Your friends at school need you, so stand up and lead them. 29-year-old kid at my gym pulled me aside just last week. Never met him before. He was so excited about his faith. He says, I'm halfway through your second book, Get Wise. Can't get enough of it. He's been here three years from, from up north, drove down, 29-year-old, not married, not dating. He's dated a few. He's in the financial services industries. 
Just a fantastic young man who's doing it right. Lives in Forest Lake, so at least there's one guy up in Forest Lake. He's available. I can't remember his name, so don't ask me. But the point is, he's doing it. I'm so proud of him. And he's going to need others to join him in the effort. For my 60th birthday, this is the final thing I want to bring your way. My millennial son and his wife, Sarah, invited my wife and me over to celebrate my birthday, a birthday dinner. Walked into their beautiful home. And David, my son, was preparing the food. So I said, Dave, what do we have? And he said, soup and a, kitchen, a chicken. Soup and a chicken. I thought, that doesn't sound very good. So I followed him in the kitchen. And he emptied three beans into the pot. And they looked just like plain beans. And I thought, well, this doesn't look very good. And he opened the oven to show me the chicken. It was just a plain chicken. So fortunately, they had some cheese and crackers sitting out. So I went over there and loaded up on that. About 10 minutes later, he said, Dad, come over here. He said, look at these mushrooms. They look like black fungus. No kidding. That's what they look like. And he was going to prepare a sauce and then mix the fungus with the dark meat from the chicken as a side dish. And so I went back to cheese and crackers. I thought, this is not going to be good. Finally, he said the soup was ready. So we all sat down. And he had some Italian bread that was covered in goat cheese, also not normal. <laughs> he said the best way is to dip it in the soup. So I dipped the bread in the soup, took a bite. It was unbelievable. It was euphoric. Then the chicken, he, he put a dressing he made under the skin of the chicken, and I inhaled it. It was so tasty. And then the black fungus mixed with dark meat was one of the best things I've ever had. And I looked at my wife. I said, our food is so bland. What have we been missing for 60 years? But that wasn't the best part. Here was, here was my 29-year-old son at the time, his wife, Sarah, sitting across from us at their little table there expecting their first child. Just a few years ago, just like this, he was a little blonde-haired kid getting hit in the head with a BB gun. <laughs> then he was a teenager who pushed the limits. It was girlfriends and arguments over curfews, just knock-down, drag-out arguments. It was going off to college. Then it was Virginia law, where every single day his faith and morals were challenged and belittled by his classmates. Every single day. And he would call home, almost in tears, just broken, didn't know if he could make it, but he did. And we wondered what, what, kind of what kind of man our son would become at times. So we sat around their table for my 60th birthday, and my son said, let's pray. And he started it on the most sincere prayer I've ever heard. He thanked God for my life and for being the kind of dad worthy of his respect who he could follow. He thanked God for our family and Sarah's family, and his prayer came from such a deep faith inside him that he began to choke up. And by the end of this prayer, Laurie and I were both just wiping the tears, and I, I thought, man, there's nothing better. That little family of four sitting around that table who love God 
and love each other so deeply. It's what God had in mind when he made families. I mean, how do you put a value on that? I am so blessed. I know I am. But here's what I want all of you to know today from the bottom of my heart. The four of us sitting around that table did not happen by accident. It didn't happen by letting our culture and universities sweep him down the polluted stream of sexual misconduct, disbelief in God, and an all-out assault on traditional Christian morals. It didn't happen by taking a hands-off approach to parenting and saying, well, he'll figure it out, because he won't if we didn't teach him. From the time our kids were born, they were in church with us, non-negotiable. That's just what we do. They were surrounded every weekend by other fantastic Christian men and women who love God, follow Christ, live their faith, love their families, and stand for truth. This church, I love this church, has been at the center of his and his sister's life for 28 years. They've been inspired every weekend by thousands of others who worship the same Jesus we worship, taught by gifted teachers, led by trusted leaders. He and his wife, Sarah, love this church. They never miss. Their faith in Christ has been their foundation. So they serve here. They give 10% of their income because they believe in what God is doing. Their best friends are in this church. They also had some great Christian coaches and teachers all through school who made a huge difference in their life. I just want to say I'm so proud of those of you who are teachers, coaches, and administrators in our public schools today. We need you to teach the next gen, not only the you know, A's and B's and math, which is fine, but to show them what it means to be a person of character and truth. How do you do it? Don't drift. Make some decisions and set an example in speech and in how you live. Gang, we're not up to bat next. We are up to bat now. Somebody in your life is counting on you to lead them. And I believe that you will because you're that kind of people. I believe God's going to use you this year. So grateful for every one of you. Let's stand and pray. Be on our way at all campuses. Let's do that. I want to pray especially for the next gen. Especially as you go off to school. Man, I hated school. I was in school all my life and I hated it. But uh, some of you like it. I don't understand that. But let's pray for, for you and be on our way. God, thanks so much for your love for us. I just pray right now for those who are in their 30s, 20s, teens. God, those who are going to school especially, wherever they land, I pray that you will just infuse them with your spirit of courage. Infuse them with wisdom, strength. When they come to a crossroads of, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go to that party and get, you know, whatever? I, God, I just pray that you'll give them the strength and the courage to know what to do. Give them good friends. Protect their mind, body, and soul. I pray. We all pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen. You're a great church. God bless all of you. Thanks for coming, everybody.